Hi, and welcome to Non-Fungible Queens, a podcast for the queens and the in-betweens. I'm Hodel Hill. I'm K-Duck. Welcome back to another episode. Tonight, we're super excited. We're sitting down with our new friend, Janice. Janice Taylor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. I, I'm so honored and excited to be here. I know. We, yeah. So we met you through um, a couple other mutual non-refungible friends. Um, they had you on their Twitter spaces. And, you know, as we were saying before we started the podcast, as soon as we heard you on here, we I think we just get so excited when we hear like any other women because um, yeah. and especially, you know, non-refungible shout out to everyone there they're super supportive but there's honestly just not a ton of women so it's mm-hmm. like when when we ha- we have a special guest that's a woman me and hill are always like yes like we need them right now so <laughs> thank you i agree well you know it's funny because it's do you guys say do I, I, sh- I always want to get his name wrong but it's cena or cena 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 yeah we met in Ibiza and in April and I was like, he was all full of like his wonderful energy, which he has and like yeah. experience and opinions. And I was just like, you and I need to have it out because I think <laughs> we're going to have a different perspective. And it was actually, you know, one of those beautiful debates where you can debate where it wasn't like anger. It was just like, let's just dive in and debate these issues on the table and it was so refreshing to have. So when he invited me to come to the to the Twitter spaces, I was like, of course. And yeah, and then- I think he could be passionate about, you know, just about anything. He, he's he's if I could pick one word to describe him, it's definitely passionate. He's passionate about everything. I love it. You know, and I think, again, it was so interesting. I think he was at first, you know, taken aback, like, hey, it was a woman potentially my age and and I was there with two colleagues and he was like well do you even understand what an nft is and they like literally busted out laughing they're like she's a founder of a company dude like let's let's go uh, I love it <laughs> yeah but he he didn't know but he assumed because I was a woman and mm. we're at Ibiza we're in Ibiza which is you know in a big electronic dance we were there to kick off the opening season of the electronic dance movement it was incredible and uh, so we were there for that, you know, music summit. So I'm sure he was kind of going, oh, well, she's not going to understand what this is about. And then he was like, oh, my God, you know a lot more than I thought you did. And so then it was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I think it's always like, oh, so like, who are you, who are you here with? Like, whose guest are you? Like, yeah. And no, it's like, I'm here. I'm here running yeah. shit. I go, well, I'm, I'm headed to the stage. I'm one of the sponsors. And, and then he was like, okay. And, you know, so then it was just so from there, it was great. So yeah. he's, he's, he's wonderful. So I, I appreciate as well, the opportunity to talk to other women that are in this space, because I think, you know, again, the entire point of web three is diversity and inclusion in my mind. So the more that we are fully decentralized, even in, you know, the type of humans that are showing up here, I think it's important. Yes, 100%. And, you know, I love that. That's exactly why we wanted to start this show is to just showcase all the great things that women across the space are doing. And, you know, it starts with with us. It starts within. So, yeah, it's super awesome to be able to chat with you. So, yeah, let's get right into it. Let's hear a little bit about your background and kind of how you got started in the space. I know you mentioned you founded a company. So, you know, but let's let's take us back to maybe like the earlier days to where you were just getting to know about NFTs and Web3? Yeah, you know, this is my third startup. So I've been in the tech industry for 13 years and prior to that, real estate investing. And where I am in, in from in Canada, I was like just raised by my mom on the streets. I was raised in the addiction communities 
And I was deeply aware that the financial system, even as a kid, wasn't built for my single mom friend, like my mom, her single mom friends. We were in a group called Parents Without Partners, if you can imagine. And oddly enough, Saskatchewan at the time in Canada was kind of the birthplace of co-ops. So what we think of DAOs, they were doing co-ops. So all of it feels like I had this really early education to be looking at financial inclusion. How do we solve financial inequality? And what does it really mean to be fully decentralized? So my first startup was across the, pro the professional sports leagues and digital animation. And my mentor had created Club Penguin. So really the metaverse. Nuh -uh. Yeah. So no way. I yeah. used to love that game. Yeah. So like I, where I am, I've been immersed by Club Penguinites, like part of my team was Club Penguin. Lance, who created Club Penguin, was a dear friend and mentor for me in my first startup, which all he did was live in an alternate universe. So, and all gamified. So like very early on in what would be, would end up being Web3, I was already thinking about like digital safety and how do we not mine data and how do we get rid of cookies and cash? And like, I was sort of like, really already thinking about that and club penguin was really like coins for change that was sort of like virtual goods so i didn't know how to apply it to solve financial inequality at the time i just was immersed in it my second startup and and still is very active for me i created a healing modality called ahava and a good friend of mine was working at a finance company looking at debt and particularly bankruptcy and said hey would you be interested in tying together emotional wellness and financial wellness so that sort of like led me into this and through that got connected to the team at Cello, who came out of MIT. They were really focused on the climate change and really looking at the climate. And I was like, well, I have this huge network across music, sports, entertainment, and I had read contracts from some of the women that I helped heal on their journey. And when I read their contracts, I was like, holy F, these are garbage. And I'm not from the music industry. I wasn't from the creative industry, but being a CEO and running companies and running licensing agreements and everything else, I could read the fine print. And I was like, you're getting hosed. Like these are shitty. And, and so as Web3 started to emerge, I was like, okay, here's me as a kid seeing women struggle, trying to get financing just to survive and feed their kids. Fast forward 25 years through a stop in the metaverse before there was a metaverse with Club Penguin, emerging out the other side with debt consolidation and thinking about Web3 really can solve financial inequality. So that's how I ended up here. I love that. You know, first of all, what an amazing story. Like, that's awesome. And for you to be able to, you know, kind of reflect back and, and notice that, you know, like you kind of merge these two aspects of your life and you're like hey I see this side like the club penguin and then I also see the side of what web3 can bring with you know allowing creators to really own their work and then you're like let's merge it all together like you know it's it's really big picture stuff and it's really cool when you know like so when you can see like somebody like hear about somebody's light bulb moment you're like yeah that that this could be awesome thank you yeah you know I think when I, I saw Web3 from such a purist point of view, I want to say, and so that's why, you know, when we were talking about the Twitter spaces last week, was I really saw it from a financial point of view. I'm like, great, creatives can be independent and own their intellectual property. Now they have a package to put that in, you know, and I'm like, great, now we can look at decentralizing data. And I'm like, great, now we can, like, I just saw 
it from a pure point of view of really breaking down the barriers to entry. And, and that's how I saw it. Yeah. And you know, that that's, it's like what everyone is like, at least most people that we talk to, like that's the hope of what draws them into web three. So it's like now the, the challenge is like, how do we fully get there? So, you know, now in the space, it's like all these talks about zero royalties and everything like that for creators. And it's just like, I don't want to go backwards to, to we've already have that. Like, that's not why we're here in web three. That's not, you know, it's like, it's not what we were promised. Like, I don't royalties is right, called right click saving. Just right click, <laughs> save the art. If you don't want to pay the artist yeah. for it. Right. It's yeah. like not what I signed up for. Well, and it's just so much bigger than that. Right. And, and I think like, the way that I see it is like, again, artists have an, a really beautiful opportunity right now to A, choose the platform they want to build on or, or choose on to build on multiple on the different protocols that exist. And I always say there's like three areas of wealth generation for artists today. The second part of that, they also, you know, really can start to capture their digital assets for long term growth. And, and that sort of, for me, was the really cool part of Web3 and still is to this day of how smart contracts work, how they work inside of an NFT, how they can really leverage metadata and payments. And ultimately, if you just look at a pure financial structure of how anybody goes from being, I'm a work from for hire to I'm building wealth around my own intellectual property and idea, which as you hope is the goal. I don't want to work for the man. I want to be that person who actually builds that that web three holds the promise for that. But you know, right now, I think a lot of the conversations are really low hanging fruit and low level energy around them and not really sort of saying, okay, what does this ultimately want to be and what can it ultimately do? And, and those are the conversations that I'm most excited about participating in. You know, and that, you know, your words just made me think of a conversation I had with a friend who, there, there was an artist who was doing commission work and I was like, you know, they're charging, they're setting their prices and they're charging this amount for their commissions. I was like, man, like, don't you think that's steep? And, and my friend was like, they're making a living and they're setting their prices rather than going to people and having people tell them what they think their work mm. is worth. They're setting it and saying, my work is worth this. If you want it, this is what you're going to pay. And I was like, you're right. And like mm -hmm. in that moment, you know, I, I almost felt embarrassed. I was like, you know, that like, how, how can I say that from the out, outside perspective? Like, I think that's overpriced. And so, yeah, I just think, you know, like that's just one example of, you know, something yeah. that this space has taught me. And it's just like, that's why I'm thankful to be here every day. And I, in that moment, I'm like, it's just so cool to be here. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 again, it's so interesting. Like even when I was early on dealing with the sports teams, cause I worked across all the five major sports leagues. And I think the thing that was most interesting was again, the protection of the brand and the equity of the brand and everything was built on a licensing model because you had to have permission to use the brand, whether it was the NFL logo or use the Chicago Blackhawks. I worked with the Lakers and the Clippers. Everything was like, our brand and our identity of this is is our value is our wealth so you only can license it we will own own it and so fast forward into web3 and i think about the marvelous creations 
like I, I freaking love creatives. I think they're amazing. I'm creative in the canvas of my brain, but, you know, ask me to like draw a stick man and I'm stumped. But, you know, I think that the interesting part of what Web3 really can do is really capture that future wealth, that intellectual property to give it your own identity of which people can license, of which you can be paid a commission, but you still have the ability to have a valuation model on your intellectual property, which is everything that we do in the tech industry, but it's never been pl applied to the creative industry, yet the creative industry has all the same tenants of a, of a tech industry. Like when a tech founder decides to build a company, they don't go, oh, I'm going to be a work for hire. They're like, no, I'm driving the valuation of this company. You can buy shares and I'm right now worth a dollar, but I want this to be worth $100. And each share in this company is going to be worth that. And I need data and I need revenue and I need predictable revenue and all the pieces that go into it. When I looked at the creative industry, everybody was a work for hire or even worse than a work for hire is a payday loan system. And I thought, fuck me. Sorry for swearing. I'm like, that is the worst. All the good. <laughs> worst, the worst, most predatory type of lending. It, it's the lowest common denominator. Like anyone in the financial sector will tell you like, oh, payday loans. Yeah, no, those are good. So anytime someone wants to offer you a cash advance, you are in a payday loan system. And so when I looked across the creative industry, I was like, wow, we really have a lot of this very heavy predatory predatory financial system baked in to creatives and it set this standard. And when I saw Web3, I was like, well, now we can break the standard because we have to break the standard because this is the habit that artists are on. They're on this sort of hamster wheel of just pay me so I can feed myself to get me to the next job. And I thought, no, there's so much more than that. There's, there's so much more we can do here. So it was, it was for me like, okay, I better jump in because I have to, I just have to. And I think where we are now is like, how do we design the map to get this change? And I think it needs to be a change and a break in the psychology of how artists and creatives think of themselves and then merge it with collectors and also finance. Yeah. And, you know, I guess my question would be to you is how, once we get the creatives and artists to think of themselves that way, how do we get everyone else to think of them that way? Because to me, that seems like the big barricade, the big challenge is like in Web3, like the culture's changing, but obviously that's a very small sample size, you know, yeah. out there in the world, this is such a foreign idea to people that, you know, artists are owning their IP, you know, setting their prices, et cetera. Like, how do we how do we do that? You know, it's that, that is like the million dollar question. And this is going to I know. Be, maybe going to be the best answer is I believe that artists have to pay attention first to their mental health and healing. And and this is coming at this from a pure healing perspective before. Uh, I believe that artists now more than ever are, are creative empaths by and large are probably the most empathic humans I've ever met. And, and because of that, they're wired into higher frequencies of the world. It, it allows them to create the creative that they do, but it also has them almost tormented in parts of their soul. They are activated in their wounded parts of their being. So when someone waves a check, it's such a relief. Oh my God, thank God, you're going to save me from my human experience, so to speak. This cash advance, I just get to go make art great. I don't have to think about all these other things because oftentimes the most creatives in the world actually are sometimes our most wounded humans. 
And the way that I think we need to shift is I believe that creators need to, A, heal the wounded parts of themselves, which doesn't have them lose their creativity, despite them thinking it does, and then allows them to really see their true value and true worth. See, most of the decisions that were made, and so my education and background is psychology, and I wrote a thesis, I created a healing modality. And when we take money off the table and just purely look at how do I heal that part of myself so that I have the strength, courage, the worthiness within myself to actually say no. And that is really the ultimate because the only reason why an artist ever says, says yes, which is what I went to, I went to, I'm like, why do they say yes? Because in their hearts, they know they don't want to do this. In their hearts, they don't want to give away their intellectual property. In their hearts, they want to be viewed differently. But there isn't a person alive that doesn't adopted this whole starving artist mentality. And I thought, well, maybe that's just really out of fashion now. Like maybe that's just really out of style. And I feel the more that creatives heal, the more that they focus on that, the more that they actually know their worthiness, the more that they say no. And the more that they say no, the more the collective feels the same courage to say no. And it ultimately is just saying no. And the way that the industry in my mind has gotten away with this, and this is now my 13th year looking at all of this, and I spent 25 years designing the healing modality, was that they're taking people at a time and they're offering these deals that people are saying yes to at their most vulnerable. And that's just so low budge. And so what I feel we need to do as a collective group that is already here, like we're already all here, is to encourage the masses and more of the creatives to really heal that part of themselves, which I know that's probably not the answer that most people would think, but if they heal this part of themselves, then they can say no just long enough to experience the freedom of what Web3 can do with for them and understand the financial fundamentals of what it can do for them. And I think when this shifts, when this fully shifts, we're going to see a wave, a, a, a tsunami of a wave where more and more people will really understand that creatives will bring most of the healing energies that we need in the world right now, especially in this decade, which oddly enough coincides with, I believe, the growth and the rootedness that needs to happen of Web3. I think that was an amazing answer. You know, like you said, maybe not the answer that was expected, but it really makes sense because everything you said, like, really starts from within. And, you know, if you value yourself the way you want to be treated, then that will reflect and, and, you know, you'll, you'll shine that onto others. And so I noticed you said you worked a lot in the sports industry. So, you know, I'm interested. I just, this question popped in my head. How do you think it would be if creatives and artists valued themselves the way that athletes do? Oh my God. Like there is a game changing because again, it happened, happened as a collective. So this is the one thing that I think that is so interesting about the artist community, because, you know, you can't do what you do, even if you're in the music industry with a certain amount of ego, it, the ego does exist. Yet, if you think about sports industries, they're really built as a team. So if you think about any team, one guy demands a payday, another guy demands a payday. And before you know it, all of the salaries raise, all, all basically the boats rise, right? The whole boats rise. If you think about the artist community, if, and I'll just talk about the music industry where I am, it's so individualistic in so many ways. In some cases it needs to be, but in other cases it really doesn't. 
So the first thing I want to say, no offense to the music artists, is stop fighting amongst each other. This is an abundant pie where you all get to be your individual. But if the boat doesn't rise together, it's never going to rise. Because if we look at the sports industry, it's built initially from this entire team mentality. So if you look at a roster of a, of a sports team, and I worked in the NBA, so we worked with those teams. And so you look at 10 players. Well, now the minimum player, the only cheap time you ever get to get away with not paying a player properly is their first rookie year. After that, they get to write, sign a different contract because they did it together. It was a very much of a community mindset. So what I would say to the Lady Gagas of the world, to the independent artists, is like you need to look at what's collectively happening in your industry and you need to create a broader community of agreement. Essentially, that says that this is the new normal, which means you have to check that giant ego you have in the back of your like imagination and say, how do we rise together? How do all boats come up together? And that's, I think, the problem in the in the music industry specifically, even though they talk about the music industry, it's really individualistic. And as long as it's individualistic, people will be clamoring over each other to get to the top of that pie which by its very nature has created an entire system of financial inequality on purpose. It's created indentured servitude because there's idea is, well, I need to be the most famous, the best artist by myself, where in fact, that's total BS. Like if you raise together, then you would have that. And that's what the sports industry has done really well especially like you look at baseball, you look at basketball, you look at hockey. Now it started in soccer. Now it started with a collective group of women. The music and the art industry needs to see themselves more as a team and less as an individual star. I love that. You know, the whole time I was just thinking of like the NBA Players Association, yeah. you know, that's, that's, you know, it was formed. That's all they're set out to do. Like, in my mind, I'm like, you know, like the entertainment industry needs something like that. So yeah, definitely some really great thoughts on that topic. Yeah, you know, for sure. Because even if you look at like, the other thing that they demand now is revenue sharing, which goes back to wealth generation. So it's not enough that they're just paid. If I'm going to build your brand, I want shares. And if you actually look in the tech industry, the NBA players, all predominantly black men, are some of the most prolific investors in technology now because they got fully educated on where the real wealth and money is. So they are now not only venture capital investors, like if you look at Kevin Durant, he only went to play in Golden State just so that he could learn the tricks of the trade of the VC industry and how to build pure wealth. And so those players have, have just fully abandoned, like, yes, I'm gonna play basketball, but if you look at their earnings, yes, they make a lot of money playing basketball, but they pay, they make even more on their tech investments and on their shareholder amounts that they own in shares. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of times people forget that at the end of the day, it is a business. You know, they're playing a game and, and they are athletes, but at the forefront of their mind, you know, they're setting themselves up. They're thinking business wise. And, you know, a lot of people tend to forget that. You totally. Like if you look at Michael Jordan's contract, like he asked for shares, right, in Nike. Like he didn't he didn't take the ten million dollars that was wagged at him. He took shares of Nike. And that made him a billionaire. Can I put an unpopular opinion out there? Yes. I think that sports stars are completely overpaid and overrated. <laughs> yes. I think are. they're playing a game 
And I don't know why we're paying them for that. That's, That's my take on sports things. Without a doubt, we were just talking about baseball because I love baseball. And we were talking about their their salaries. Without a doubt, I think it's more about how they figured out how to manipulate the financial system to work for them. Yeah, and you know that was really my point with the whole if the creatives value themselves like athletes. Like there's been athletes that sit out a whole season because they don't get the contract they want. Are there artists out there that, that stop creating art for a whole year because they're not getting the, the contracts they want? Like that's, that's you know, the sentiment and like the mindset that I was getting when Janice was talking about all that. Yeah, yeah, totally. So let's move on a little bit and hear about what you're building. You know, you mentioned you're building um, a couple companies. Let's hear about those. Yeah, you know, EQ for me was and has been a real interesting social experiment on these topics, right? Like, why do people say yes to that contract? What do they actually need? What do they ask for? So like, we've had thousands of artists come to us with different requests, everything from, I'm just looking for $5,000 to, I'm looking for marketing. And it was such an interesting social experiment for me to really learn and pull all of that into EQ. Where we're headed next, we'll be making some announcements um, in the very near future because we're really working a lot with Cello, which we love as our, you know, the protocol that we've chosen right now to build on and the ecosystem that we're building in. And we're really, really passionate about it. You know, at the same time that I was building EQ was also looking at what is the connection between emotional woundedness and finance? And that's been an exploratory several years, like developing Ahava, how, looking at how people heal, particularly how creatives heal and how it connects and shows up in our financial life. So further to what we're talking about, like even though someone knows that a deal may not be good for them, why do they say yes? Like what is it about that that, that makes them give their power away ultimately? Because not all deals are like that, but many of the deals are like that. So they sign their power away because they also sign their intellectual property away. Like, is it part of a system? I really wanted to understand that. Like, is this a system that just exists and this is the way that it's always been done? And this is the only way that Billie Eilish, for example, can become Billie Eilish. Would we know Billie Eilish if this system didn't exist? That's sort of the ultimate question. And I took that as like such a great challenge to dive into as web three has been emerging, which again, I feel that web three holds the promise of solving a lot of financial inequality questions amongst a population of humans that really could utilize this technology for their benefit, whether you're a creative or not. And so diving into these parts has been fascinating. Ahava is, is the, has been a huge birth for me. It's 25 years of a healing modality. And I'm really proud of it. It's a process that works. 95% of the people heal from it. And it's it's beautiful at the same time that I've been building EQ. So I've kind of had my hands in a few pockets um, <laughs> over the last couple of years. So let's dive into Ohava first. Tell us basically how the process works, I guess, or, or kind of day to day what that looks like for you building that. Yeah, you know, I I did my degree in psychology, but prior to that, I was a kid that grew up on the streets. My dad was a chronic addict. 
because of the time period, it was in the 80s, they were like, oh, this is a kid at risk. So let's put this kid in all these programs. So I went from everything from Alateen to aftercare to basically receiving my doomsday sentence that I was going to be an alcoholic just like my dad. And I had an 85% chance of becoming one. And that was told to me probably when I was like 12, 13 years old. So it's a hell of a thing to tell a young girl who's also growing up in poverty and we had no food. And, and that part of that experience really led me to doing my degree in psychology. And I was learning all these theories and I'd write on the back of the page like, okay, well, this doesn't actually work for people that are having to pay bills or survive or live. I go, this theory's great in a lab with rats. It doesn't necessarily work to real life. And when I finished my degree, my professor at the time said, well, you should really go write your own theory since you disagree with everything that we're teaching you. And I said, well, I don't disagree with all of it, but certainly part of it. But again, my own scarcity route drove me away from academics because I really, I said, well, I don't want to be poor anymore. So I'm going to go into real estate investing. And then I ended up in pharmaceutical drugs, actually working within the pharmaceutical industry, oddly enough, studying pharmaceutical drugs, which really allowed me to open my eyes to what was happening in the pharmaceutical industry. And then when I was making my first startup, I, I really felt connected to giving back and wanted to. So I started to work with women that were in recovery. And this whole time I had been writing the modality. I felt that there needed to be a different 12 steps than the 12 steps that we traditionally know from AA. I felt that most of the behaviors that show up in our life really come from a wounded part of our being early on in our childhood. And then I wanted to say, well, why do people relapse? So I studied relapse rates for a decade. And I thought it's because we've never really birthed the calling, the purpose that we need to understand that I as a human being, even though I've been born in this giant pile of shit and I've had all this stuff happen to me, I must matter. There must be a point to my existence. And so I wanted to create a process that would basically create the aha and when I was a kid growing up, we had one cable channel and it had three things on the TV. One was baseball, hence my love of sports. The second was Oprah. And Oprah would say, have your aha moment. And I'm like, well, what the F does that mean? And can I create one? Can I actually manufacture an aha? I want an aha moment. And so that was when I was like 13 years old and it took me 25 years to figure out how to make the whole process. So now when someone comes to me, we basically use whiteboards. It reveals the truth of their human existence, of exactly their purpose, their calling, and what they're supposed to be. And if they follow the next 12 steps, 95% of them are fully healed when they're done. And that's the final thing I'll say about that. I did not agree, philosophically anyway, with the fatalist approach that you are always healing, you are never healed. Once an addict, always an addict. I hated all of that. I was like, man alive, a human can evolve, a human can heal. We can cure everything else but our human wounded woundedness. And so because I didn't buy that, I wanted to make my own. So I did. And that was a hava. Wow, that's really cool. You know, and even just hearing you say that, I know like that's what I've been told my whole life is like, you're always healing, you're always working on yourself, you're always, you know, you're always growing, etc. So to hear the opposite of that, it's eye-opening. I think, yeah, I think it's, you know, I understand that in a certain small percentage of the population, they will struggle with quote-unquote addiction because they're biologically wired and that's how their brain is. But for about 95% of the population, I'm not so sure. 
I think that there is the percentage of the population that can heal. But I think in order to heal is what I've discovered after 25 years. People need to birth their purpose, the entire meaning of their human existence. And, and so when we look at the data of before their 10th birthday, which is always a miraculous exercise, people come to me and then they birth on the board, basically. They barf on the board is whatever all my clients say. I'm going to go barf on Genesis board. So they barf on the whiteboard and we basically see all the data, which essentially informs and tells us exactly the purpose of their life. That's amazing. Um, we want to hear about your other company too, because it's more Web3 focused, right? The yes. EQ Exchange? Yes. So, you know, an EQ for me is really, I feel like it's more of a finance company and it's morphing into more of a collective, but it, you know, I really was focused on how can we provide financial education and create different financial products that can really allow an artist to maintain their intellectual property. So we launched the marketplace like many other people did. We looked at how we could create really novel smart contracts, which we really explored that. So we have multiple splits on the, on the wallets. The other part for me was, which is something that's going to be in, introduced in the coming months, is, is really this strong financial education collective. Like how can we essentially teach monopoly to artists so that artists can utilize Web3, but for their own benefit so that they can actually build the, those assets underneath themselves? That, that for me was such an important part of being in Web3. And, and so I always say to, to my team and, and to different members of the Web3 community that I feel like Web3 is a giant game of monopoly. And you're going to have different types of NFTs and different types of assets. And it should be built as such. And it should be a giant um, like treasure hunt, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we're always looking <laughs> looking for that next chest of treasure out there yeah um so um it's mostly about music nfts or did i read that wrong music yeah so right now we're just in the music industry the music music felt like the first place to go in web3 because it contains data and it also you know it already has revenue it or and it can appreciate over time those are the three criterias that i think are really important to think about in web3 like can can we can the asset by itself generate revenue, um, which is important in the financial side of the world? Let let's separate from our love of the creativity and inspiring. We're going to assume all of those things, but at the core root of this, the ultimate goal is for the artist to maintain their financial independence. And so, looking at music was like, well, music has already had its digital transformation. It's already digital. It already tracks as a digital asset that lives in Web two for different reasons. It has different types of revenue streams that one piece of music can generate. The other part of that is that music can appreciate in value over time just by virtue of existing. And the other part of it is that it can be built into a portfolio, into a catalog. That one piece of music, similar to a, a real estate house, may not have value by itself, but if you bundle them together, now they have enormous value which is how portfolio theory and different components of the real estate industry has been built. And so I saw music in very much the same way. I'm like, when you first want to make your first song, you need a co-signer. Just like when you want to buy your first house, you may need a co-signer. And then you need a down payment. And so how do you get your down payment? 
And so looking at it from that lens, um, we really wanted to begin that way with EQ. That's, yeah, sounds like a good start. Um, my Actually, the only Solana NFT I've ever been involved with is something called Pixel Bands. And it's a music NFT where each artist makes a, a not necessarily a beat, but like a sample. And then you can combine them together and then they have it baked into the contract that each time it's sold, that artist gets a cut of the sale, which I thought yeah. was really cool. Yes. And then I uh, have made a new friend in the sandbox. I've got lots of friends in the sandbox, but he's yeah. putting out a, a single every week for sale in sand, which is their native token. Nice. Um, and it's a recap of the previous week. So it's just, I think it's a really emerging industry. Like we're over profile pictures now. Yes. And we're going to see what else we can do with NFTs. Like the way I see an individual artist is if like, if you were to imagine like their own monopoly board and some assets are like Park Place and some will be like Charles Street, but you work your way around the board and you roll the dice and you stop on each one of those. And when you open up this asset to look at it with this NFT, this collectible, however you want to look at it, it's like, oh, I need to own that. So then you have other people that want to come along and say, oh, I want to play on that board too. So now if you think about it, it's like, so I'll just say Billie Eilish. We'll use her as an example. And Billie Eilish has her own Monopoly board that she's carved out. And on the Monopoly board, there's a hundred different spaces. And some of her art assets, maybe it's her lyrics, maybe it's backstage passes or a get out of jail free card or it's Park Place. But the goal is to basically look at each one of these boards and say, I want to buy some of these and if other people land on those spots to also want to buy them they either pay rent or they pay the royalty or they want to buy you out because they want to have that piece of the square and I can't wait for the industry to mature this way because once it does now it takes art music everything basically into multiple multiple different types of Monopoly boards, but then you take the individual. So now I'm a collector. Well, my Monopoly board could include sport assets, music, art. If you were to drive and follow around my board and you stop at the different places of my own board as a collector, that's my portfolio. And you could stop on my parks, my park place square. And so this is what I, in my imagination, I see the future of Web3. So I want to know a little bit about what you guys offer to artists and creatives at EQ. Like an artist comes to you and they say, um, you know, they want to start a project. Is that something that you guys kind of aid them in? Mm-hmm. In some cases, they can just go through the whole process so they can sign up, become an artist, and they can launch a basic NFT, a music NFT with us. Others reach out and ask us for other things. Like they ask us for collabs or they ask us for collaborations or introductions and to different artists. So sometimes, um, depending on the artist, it's just a straight up, I want to launch this NFT. Like Donnie De Niro that's on there right now, he's got some really cool NFTs that are for sale and he has all different levels. When we launched with Ashanti, she did her first re-record of her first of, of her masters from 20 years ago. And so she sold five different levels of an NFT for people to be able to share in the royalties of that music. So it really depends on the artist and it depends on what they're looking for. Where we're moving to now is looking at a lot of the artists have asked us for pre-funding, a lot of them. (laughs) So they're looking for money before they launch. And so we really started to analyze the market as to, can we provide pre-launch funding to some of these projects to really fuel the industry? 
I love that. You know, it's such a, such a hard thing and so daunting to kind of get in this space alone, but, you know, having this kind of avenue for them to go through, like that's, it's really crucial in my opinion. Truthfully, I think it's such an important part of it. And again, like, you know, we, we looked at this, like how much of this could be automated and how much of this can we facilitate? And I, I, I say often there was like three C's that we learned from artists. They're looking for capital, they're looking for collaborations, and they're looking for community. This, I believe, is the most consistent thing that all artists are looking for within Web3. So I'd be interested to hear about what you think about some of the music NFTs that have launched lately on Ethereum. Um, I don't know if you've kept up with any of them. Um, you know, some of them have uh, been, you know, newsworthy, I guess, lately. You know, Block Tones, I think that was a generative one. Um, OMG Kirby, there's a couple other ones. Um, Kingship. You know, yeah, Kingship. Um, how do you feel about that? And do you think, like, they a project like that has has what it takes to be successful? I, again, I, I love, I call them all kind of experiments because I think they're teaching us so much. So first of all, the artists that are going ahead of our, I think there's another one, Domino is going out there. I think that's his name. Um, Latesh, Latasha, she's been out there. I think there's been some really cool projects and experimentation. And like, and I feel again, they're like so early to teach us about different ways to use this technology. Where I believe they need to go, which again is kind of a bit of the antithesis of Web3 and a little bit of like not what artists want to hear, is they need to build a financial strategy into these launches. So yes, they're creative. Yes, they're awesome. But like, what's the big picture? Like what happens next? Like that's where my brain goes. It's like, is this the first of five? Like, is this, am I on the journey? Like what's the storytelling around it? And I think that some of them are definitely starting that. And I think they're pioneering really early, just like user adoption and how people will, will gravitate to these projects. But this is no offense to the industry. I hope it's not offensive. But I, the industry is very young in its mind, in its mindset. So like I'm an, I hate to say this, but like an old dog in Web3, <laughs> I feel like, but like a, uh, long so time, am I. <laughs> a long time in tech. And I feel like, you can't throw everything that we learned about building really great products in web two out the window. We still need to look at what can we do here that still honor some of those teachings and learnings and how are these built into the overall strategies? And this is what I feel is greatly missing from all these projects. If I go to, I love sound XYZ. I love what they're doing there. I think they are nailing it. You know, if I go there versus like Royal, I don't think Royal's nailing it. No offense to Royal, but like, I'm trying to look through like, how are you guiding artists through this? Like, what's your big strategy with this? Besides just asking them to come here and drop projects. And I think that that's where I think we need to go. Like we need to go in like, what's the map? What's the infrastructure? What's the overall strategy? for all of these to, to be successful. But I have mad love for the artists that are out there killing it right now. Yeah. And you know, I, I do have some OMG Kirby's and I do have some block tones. So I thought it was really cool 
what Blocktones did with their reveal, they actually had you sign a transaction granting the right for them to use your your music NFTs in their stream. And then this wasn't announced, but then yesterday they actually announced that after the reveal, they gave everyone 10 USDC that participated in the stream, you know, furthermore granting them royalties from the stream. So obviously, you know, they were very upfront and like, Hey, this is just a proof of concept, but yep. um, you know, something we really wanted to do. So I thought that was really cool to see, you yeah. know, people trying to push the boundaries and, you know, yeah, they're really, you know, trying to change the game. So yeah, it was just a little glimpse of, of what Love the future that. could be, I think. Yeah. And I, I think that, I think the, the, the elephant in the room is listening habits. <laughs> like, I think that for me is like the big thing. I believe that people want to buy cool things. I think people will always pay for access. They pay now. Um, I think that the hardest part for the Web3 music world is how you really tackle ingrained listening habits. Because from a psychological point of view, that behavior is a really hard habit to tackle and very hard for people to move. I love that you get all the point of views, like you get the the tech, the music industry and the psychology part of it, like really just like the triple threat here. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's hard, right? Like, like ask your ask anybody, you know, right now, if you just stop and ask five people on the street, if they delete their Spotify today and get rid of their playlist. Yeah, no way. No, no, <laughs> no, no, not a chance. And so unless we want to address that full, fully and wholeheartedly, we're kind of just skirting around the fringes of this. Yeah. So a question I have is what would, what's like your ultimate goal for EQ? Like what would be you like, okay, like, you know, we've made it. I'm super happy with where we are right now. You know, for me, the most important part of EQ is the mission was to solve financial inequality. And my ultimate goal with EQ is that if a thousand artists and a thousand of their fans embrace Web3 around the full totality of what is real financial inequality look like in their life today and their true desire to want to tackle that and to say, fuck it, forget everything I know. Like, I'm sick of this. Like, I actually want true financial inequality. Like for me, then I'll feel like, okay, I'm good. You know, EQ's good. We've done our job in the world because the more that we can have people that really like look at that in the face and want to tackle it, like stare the bull down right in the eye. Um, that for me is like the most important part of EQ is like, how can we impart this wisdom and knowledge so that an artist and a collective group of artists start to just say no, like we're not going to accept that anymore. And I believe that that's the wave that needs to happen. That, 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 that for me is what we're tackling because unfortunately I meet a lot of artists and the, still the driving force for them is like, how do I be famous and show up on a playlist on Spotify? That's their drive. I don't want to be disrespectful, but that's their drive. Even some of the most prolific people in the world want to get back to the top of where they used to be. That's their drive. Do you think right now the drive is not even necessarily getting on Spotify, but like a trending song on TikTok? Yeah, or that, you know, 
like, I think it's either that or how much is the distribution platforms are able to take from artists because they wave the carrot. We'll get you on a, on Friday night, you know, Friday playlist on Spotify. So they'll give away 10 to 30% of their royalties in order to try to get on these playlists. That, that ugly part of the industry, I really despise. Wow. I didn't even know that. I always just assume, I guess that's really naive of me, but being on the outside, I always assumed it was no. somebody, somebody curating the playlist that they actually liked. Well, it's supposed to be, but no difference than the radio. Yeah. Like no difference than what used to happen with the old school radio. Like you'd have to know the disc jockey, right. To get your record played. So a promoter would work that angle to get your record played. Well, now distribution platforms that get your music onto Spotify, they work the angle with those playlists that own those playlists to get your music seen on those playlists. So that's the dirty part of the industry. And then it's all like, well, we have these relationships. We'll do this for you. And I, I am not from the music industry, so I will, I would be like lambasted for saying this, but I think that is gross because that just creates all barriers to entry for artists. And so that's, that's still a gated community. That's a gated community. So if there is a web through three pioneer listening to this, go tackle distribution and playlists and make that exactly what it should be decentralized and democratized. I love that. We, we love a direct call to action. So if, my if, you're, call. if you're listening, you better get <laughs> yeah. on it. Yeah. Cause I think the person that cracks that can actually really solve the game because then artists won't feel that now they have to sign any of these deals because then it's really democratized. So labels control Spotify. So you'll sign a label deal so that you can show and get and show up in a playlist so you can be played. So people will discover you and listen to you. The next layer of that is distribution partners. They say, well, we'll get your music distributed to Spotify. But in order to do that, if you take our other deal, 10 to 30% of our royalties, of your royalties, we'll get you on the playlist so you can actually be listened to. And because artists are all driving to be heard and listened to and to ultimately become that viral song, they will accept these terms. And the terms do not equate to it actually happening. Now, some people say that they do. I don't agree. Like in the tech industry, we always separate like our, what we call our CAC, which is our customer, customer acquisition costs from investors. Investors don't give me money and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to bake in all these services for you. No, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, it just seems like it goes back to the fact that there's just a monopoly on the industry. It's like, what other option do they have? Do they want to give up 30% or, you know, have a hundred percent of nothing? Exactly. <laughs> and so this is why we need to democratize listening and discovery again, because until we can democratize listening, even though people think that we're, it's democratized, it's not. And, and until we can like really tackle that white elephant in the room, which is listening habits. And until the people really demand more, like what you guys have done with this amazing thing, which you were saying with blocktones, right? Like that's a really great thing. That's directly rewarding the fan. And I think that that's super important because until people really understand the underbelly of this industry, it will continue. And artists will always be left holding the bag, which I fucking hate. <laughs> I just don't think they should be. Um, but that's a kind of what's happened. 
I agree. I agree. I've really appreciated your convo tonight. It's been awesome hearing about you and and everything you've been up to. Yeah. Your thoughts on the space. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I hope that it was in, informative, and I hope I don't get killed by the music industry. For <laughs> they're probably well, not listening yeah, to so. us. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> If there is a a savvy developer out there and a savvy group of humans that want to really tackle this, I'm happy to give you all the knowledge that you need in order to solve it. Um, But it's, it's definitely worth it. So where can they find you, you know, if they want to, you know, learn more about you, follow you, or, or maybe even, you know, hit you up with that offer. Yeah, for sure. They can hit me up at just be Janice on, on Twitter. They can also just go to EQ Exchange. Uh, so EQ.exchange is our email ad or is our is our website. And then, of course, just anytime that anybody DMs me as as Hodel did, I was I respond on uh, Twitter all the time. Yeah, thank you for responding, by the way. <laughs> I got in those DMs really fast once I heard. It was wonderful. Yeah. And, I, and I love that you guys are hosting this. It's really, it's incredible. Yeah, so... A question we always end with all of our guests is, you know, being involved in Web3 space and all your experience now, looking back, what would be some advice that you would give to another woman that maybe wants to join the space, but is kind of on the fence? I would say there is no time like the present. So like, don't think you're too late. Don't think that you're too early. Don't think that you need to ride out the bear. There is absolutely no time like the present for you to leap in. Get on YouTube, start watching videos, start getting the basic vernacular down because there's a lot of vernacular in Web3 that's unnecessary, but it exists. So the more that they can get that down and there's just no time like the present. There's just no time like the present. I love yeah. that. The best time to start was yesterday, but the second best time is today. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly it. I hear from people all the time. They're like, oh, I'm too late. Oh, it's not a good time. No, it's the bear market. Oh, I don't know enough. Oh, I'll wait till everybody else hears about it. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I uh, I think a lot of this space dwells on what they missed instead of, you know, looking, looking forward to what they might get catch next time. So I think um, it's something that I think it's like, it's almost like a lot of people are stuck on it. They're like, yo, I miss board apes. So what am I doing here? Oh, I know it's, it, it you know, it, initially it was to create that FOMO in the marketplace so that they could drive a lot of these projects and a lot of the price and a lot of the demand. I understand that, but that needs to go away. It, it, it's not actually sustainable in the long run. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. It was so great hearing from you and I I hope we can keep in touch and hopefully have you back on and and hear all the things you've been up to. Yes. And please send me the link whenever this is live. Yes, we will for sure. (laughs) Thanks guys. It was wonderful to chat. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. That's all for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at NF Queens podcast. Stay tuned for next week. Bye.